The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. At times, it seems like when you work on your professional career, your personal life seems to fall behind. Then, when you work on improving your personal obligations, the professional part of your life begins to suffer. Is there any way to keep them both humming along at a successful pace? Welcome to Master Your Life with Leah Mattinson. We'll take the guesswork out of which part of you is more important and show you the success stories of others that can help you realize that you can manage it all. Now, here is your host, Leah Mattinson. Well, hello and happy day to you all. I'm so thrilled you can be here with us today navigating this great adventure we call life. I just want you to take a moment to think about this as you listen to the show today. Uh, Who am I right now and who is it that I want to be? And uh, I was, um, I'm not sure how I stumbled across our show today, um, but I like to think think that things happen for a reason that sometimes we don't quite understand. And as I was um, looking for someone to write the foreword for my book is how I met uh, our upcoming guest today. And so... Uh, my new book called Silver Linings, which is going to be uh, published and on the shelves soon, I was on a quest to find somebody to write the foreword for that book. And as I was searching through uh, various sources, I stumbled upon a gentleman who had just a fantastic background uh, in neuroscience and psychology. And uh, he's a, an expert in many fields, including writing and entertainment. So uh, I connected uh, with him, and as we worked together, I just found that we had a lot of shared values and and how we wanted to help people and how we felt it was important to be introspective and and to grow and uh, so through that journey, um, I was able to uh, entice this fine gentleman to join me in this journey on this radio show as my co-host uh, for Master Your Life. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Howard Rankin. Well, thank you so much, Leah. It's uh, an honor and a privilege to join you and to participate in this great adventure. So thank you so much. Fantastic. So um, today, I just want to start out with uh, letting the audience get to know who you are, Howard. And so maybe you can just start out telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, Well, I was born and raised in London, England. Um, And um, I became a psychologist in my uh, early 20s. And uh, actually, in the first part of my career, I was an academic researching into addictions. In fact, the group that I was in contributed significantly to the scientific definition of drug dependence. Um, Got a little bored of that um, and went into a private clinical practice in a non-profit hospital in Northampton, England. And uh, some of the listeners might know that Northampton is Princess Diana's hometown, and I actually met her. I actually have a nice, a nice photo of the two of us talking about stress, oh. uh, which is true. She was amazing, amazing, even though she was like 20 years old. Um, um, and so you know, that was my career in the UK, and um, uh, shortly after that, I got recruited to the United States. 
And so what was the transition to the U.S.? How did, you, how did that happen? Well, I, I, I was always an, um, a big fan of the United States. So when I was younger, I used to be a big sports fan and had a radio in my room where I'd listen to anything that was vaguely sports-related. Even soccer matches in French I couldn't understand. Um, and one day <laughs> I picked up the Armed Forces Network out of Germany and they were broadcasting a baseball game. Um, that I think featured the L.A. Dodgers at the time, and I got interested in this, and before long, uh, which was really unusual at the time, the, the world was not as small as it was then. I don't even think you could make calls between the U.S. and, and the U.K. at that time. Right. But I learned a lot about baseball, and then the way I learned a lot about America, and actually was an exchange student, a high school exchange student, guess where? In Los Angeles, pure fluke, I ended up in the, in the L.A. area, which was a great experience. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, it really was amazing. And, um, and so um, when I had an opportunity to come over here um, and run a behavioral wellness lifestyle program, obviously I jumped at the chance. So that, that brought me over to this United States. That's awesome. And I understand you had this little story that you shared with me about uh, someone testing your knowledge of the baseball, the something about the L.A. Dodgers, because I just think that was really funny. <laughs> yeah, so, so when I had to apply for this high school exchange program, the American Field Service, um, you had to write an essay. And then there was a fairly extensive round of interviews because they were going to place you where they could find a home for you in the United States. So they need to be sure they're sending somebody who's sort of legitimate. Um, right. And in my essay, I had said, well, I love baseball. Well, to be honest, any person in Britain saying that at that time was either lying or, you know, was weird. <laughs> and um, so I go up to this interview at the American Embassy and there's a number of people and, they, and one guy says, well, I see you like baseball. Uh, who do you think the best pitcher is, he said, um, with a smirk on his face, not expecting me to be able to reply. And I shot back, oh, best pitcher, Bob Gibson, 27-9 and nine record, a 1.12 ERA, 389 strikeouts. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, who do you think it is? And the guy almost fell off his chair um, <laughs> that I would know so much about uh, baseball. So, yeah, that was a fun experience, and, and it probably helped me get selected to, to come to the United States. <laughs> So it pays to have hobbies. That's a good plan. <laughs> yeah, actually, it was interesting because what somebody else then picked up on it. I remember there was a woman there in the panel, and she said, okay, so if you had a choice to go on a date or watch a baseball game, which would you choose? Oh, that's mm, like a trick question. trick question. And I said, well, it depends. If it was my last week and I hadn't seen a Dodgers game, I'd probably select the Dodgers game. But any other time... I'd go for the day. <laughs> and let's face it, you can have a hot dog in either case. So <laughs> it's a win-win. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And that's excellent. So, so you came over to the U.S. And, and I, I remember you mentioning that the place that you actually got um, to live was, well, was pretty nice. Oh, my gosh. Uh, if anyone knows Southern California, it's Palos Verdes. It's a peninsula overlooking the L.A. and with a gorgeous view of the Pacific Ocean. You know, I went back probably 10 years later, and there were multi-million dollar homes all over this place. So it was an absolutely exquisite place. It was just getting started then, so I'm not sure it's quite so ritzy when I went there, but, but it was just a beautiful, beautiful place. Right. And, uh, yeah, I had, a, I had a wonderful time in my, my time there. It was great. And so as you grew in your career, what, what was kind of the next steps for you? Um, 
so I came over to the United States and I ran this uh, clinical, well, it was really a residential spa with a behavioral emphasis on weight and wellness. Ah, um, okay. And um, so that was great. I was giving a lot of seminars. I was doing some clinical work. I was meeting a lot of people. I was actually helping with the man who owned it had started the journal Addictive Behaviors, oh, okay. um, which is a scientific journal about addictions. And, you know, I helped edit that. So I still kept my hand in the academic game. Um, and I did that for, for 10 years. Um, and that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, met lots of interesting people and, um, you know, that was a, a good placement for me and I, I hope I contributed to that program. Oh, I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. That's such a needed area. The addictions is just rampant. That's for sure. So, so in this trajectory of a mastery, you know, life mastery, um, has there ever been a time when you've stumbled? Uh, yes, I have. So, um, after I left the, um, Hilton, what was then called the Hilton Head Health Institute, mm-hmm. um, and actually still existing today under a slightly different name, Hilton Head Health, and it's a great program. Um, I went out on my own. I put myself into uh, clinical practice and consulting, and I also started writing. Huh. And, um, and I started writing some self-help books. I, I started my own little publishing company to, to do that. Um, and uh, that was a lot of fun. I, I found a way to really market myself pretty well. And so actually I got on all the major networks, a lot of radio coverage, a lot of coverage in major newspapers, and um, and, and on TV shows like The View. And it was actually even featured on ABC's 2020. Um, so I did a lot of that. And so that's what I was doing. Um, I actually got into the neuroscience area in the last few years and was doing brain mapping, brain training. I actually did one of the first projects in the U.S. public school system using EEG um, brain mapping to test troubled children. So, you know, my career was going great. And then I did something really dumb. Um, and uh, what I did was... Um, I had a client who came to me, a female client came to me uh, around 2005, had some some issues, um, PTSD, borderline personality, you know, difficult client, but I think we worked really well together, Right. and uh, she quit after three years, and then said, well, I'd really like to come back um, and see you, and I said, well, you know, not as a therapist, because, you know, you're referred elsewhere, but I know you work around the corner, if you want to come see me, that's fine, and so we did that socially for four years, and then one time, leaving my office, um, the hug became more than a hug, and over the next few days, it got a little out of hand, um, and became a consensual sexual relationship, um, and then we came to our senses, um, and, uh, a couple of months later, I was actually out in Missouri doing this project, uh, with troubled elementary kids, I got a call from the licensing board in South Carolina to say that somebody had filed a complaint against me for sexual misconduct. And to cut a very long story short, six months later, um, the Board of Examiners in Psychology permanently revoked my psychology license. Wow. So so in that moment when you got the, the phone call, Howard, what, what happened in your world? Um, well, a lot of uncertainty, of course, um, a lot of self-recrimination, um, a lot of guilt, but most of all, the thought was for my, my lovely wife, 
um, how I was going to tell her, what this would mean to her. Um, I really didn't know that at the time because it seemed unlikely from the information I was getting that I was actually going to lose my license. Um, I was told that was not probably the likely outcome. But even so, um, the point is I had cheated on my wife and I needed to tell her that and face up to the consequences of that. And that was an incredibly, incredibly difficult thing to do. I wouldn't recommend anyone do it at home or anywhere else or find yourself in a situation where you have to do that. Um, and um, so that was really a low point for me. I don't know that I've ever had to do anything um, as difficult as that. Um, I, so, it's not, I'm sorry. That's okay. So just how did your wife respond to your disclosure to you? Well, um, of course, she was very, very angry and understandably so. And then initially said, well, I need some time to think about this. Um, but, you know, we talked a lot. We shared a lot. And, um, you know, she came to forgive me. And I consider myself to be a very lucky man that she did come to forgive me. Um, and, you know, we're going to talk soon, I think, about the binary brain, about how we think of what things very much as alternatives. And there's a wonderful line in the movie Warhorse, um, great screenwriting, where the man, one of the major characters, does something really dumb. He goes and buys an expensive horse when uh, he and his wife are on the edge of bankruptcy, and she is really mad at him. <laughs> and he said, and he says, and it's you know she delivers this fantastic line. She says, um, "Please," he says to her, "Please, please don't hate me." And she says, "I might hate you more, but it doesn't mean I love you less." Well, that is a Isn't very, that incredible, very incredible, incredible yeah. line. And and so you know, I think that's how my wife felt for a while. Um, yeah, I can hate you for doing this, but it doesn't mean I don't love you. Yes, and I remember somebody saying a quote. I can't remember who it's by now, but it's like love is an act of endless forgiveness. Right, and and so you know, if we talk um, about you know my recovery or from that um, my redemption, I think it really began at that moment when you know my wife said that. Um, and I think there's a message there for all of us in these situations. And when we know people in these situations, that love and that compassion means everything. I mean, there were, there were a few people who found out about it and there was a piece in the newspaper about it, which we, you know, which was not very representative of what happened. And so that was an appalling piece. Um, but there were people who picked up the phone and called me and said, are you okay, Howard? Is there anything I can do? You know, and that just meant the world to me. I know how important that is now um, to offer that to people, and it's 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 just incredible. So it was really a gift and a blessing. And there were many things that have come out of the situation that have been, you know, eye-opening, wonderful lessons and gifts to me. And I know there was one other um, person, just because we've talked about. Um that who was affected by this and who you had to also confess to, uh, your son. Yeah, and uh, he had just graduated and he was away, just starting his first job. And uh, we knew this was going to come out in the newspaper. And so 
um, we had to Skype him and say, hey, this has happened. So my wife and I got on the Skype and spoke to him and told him what had happened. And there was a piece coming out in the newspaper about it. And his reaction was, um, dad doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't mean I love you any less. Mom, you know, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you guys. And by the way, do you need any money? <laughs> and that's the sort of amazing son that we have. Right. Um, so well, it sounds like, that, your, sounds like your family has a lot of courage also yeah. just to face yeah, the and, truth. And, and the interesting thing about that call is, you know, at the beginning of the day, I knew this piece was going to be in the newspaper. That was going to be my worst day ever. But by the evening after that call, it might have been one of my best days. Right. And so as we uh, move into this first break, um, just want to thank you for sharing uh, your personal story on that, Howard. And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about the public humiliation that you just mentioned and uh, sort of your journey um, back and since then. So uh, I would just like to invite everyone to come back to hear Howard and his story of continuing redemption and courage and developing moral intelligence. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Are you in your own driver's seat? Tune in to a program that will get you there based on what others have managed to do through challenges in their lives and how they persevered. Tune in to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. On our show, we use real issues and experts to help you reclaim your life. Danielle and her guests are here to steer you in the right direction. Make sure that you are here every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's time to harness your power. It's time to do all of those things that you always said you'd do in your life. What's stopping you? Is it other people, your environment, fear? What could give you a push? Tune in to Raising the Bar with Amy Bredo. Our show is all about taking risks and turning them into positives and personal gain. We'll help your inner voice speak up and get you out of that comfort zone. Raising the Bar can be heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Master Your Life. To reach Leah Mattinson or her guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to Leah. That's L-E-A-H-A at changeyourlife.expert. Now, back to Master Your Life. Well, welcome back, and and thank you for joining us again. Uh, We're today talking to uh, my friend and uh, co-host, Dr. Howard Rankin. Uh, Howard, before the break, we were talking about kind of your uh, journey through um, losing your professional uh, status, and I just wanted to pick up on, we, we talked about the courage of your family and uh, the healing that happened with you and your family. Uh, but then there was the next part of the story, which is what actually happened as a uh, fallout publicly. Yeah. So um, what happened was um, 
of course, I had to let all my clients know that I was immediately closing my practice. You, you don't get any time to say goodbye. And um, so I, you know, let all my clients know that my practice was closing. There was one woman who said, first call was, um, oh, I'm so sorry, you've been so helpful to me. The next call was, I found out what happened, and I hope they put you in jail. You're a blah, blah, blah. And then she went to the local newspaper. I guess she knew a friend who was working there, and they produced the story about me, which, you know, um, you know, I didn't really want to comment on because I'd advise not to. So I, I couldn't correct all of the, the misperceptions that are, that are in that story. Um, and so it was out in the newspaper. So here I am. I lived in this community for almost 30 years. I was a respected professional. I did lots of things. And uh, here I am uh, on the front page of the newspaper um, with the fact that my license has been revoked because I had sex with a client. I th thought it was a former client. The board saw it differently. Um, so now what? And there were some interesting experiences that came from that. My initial reaction was, I'm not going to be intimidated by that. I'm not going to allow that to bother me. And in fact, the morning or the day that came out, I made sure that I was out visiting my friends and former colleagues, um, not hiding under the pillows. Sure. Um, but there's some interesting things. I live in a fairly close-knit community, and people walk their dogs. And uh, shortly after this came out, I was walking my dog. And there was, here comes somebody the other way, who actually had also been a client of mine. And as she gotten close, I wondered what she was going to say. She actually turned around and walked the other way. Wow. And what went through my mind at that mm -hmm. moment, and I honestly see this as a blessing and a, mm -hmm. a wonderful gift. What went through my mind at that moment was, okay, I now know what it's like to be a minority um, or a little bit about what it's like to be in a mi minority where you're shunned like that, where people walk away. What goes through your mind? What have I done? Why are you walking away? Uh, you don't know the answer to that. That's frustrating. You're angry. Um, and it was an incredible insight because, frankly, I'm a popular guy and nobody's ever <laughs> turned 180 degrees and walked in the other direction when I've been coming you know so right. and we have a real basic need also as human beings for like connection and love and absolutely. belonging and absolutely. so to be um shunned from the the pack and just all the uncertainty i think uh would have been a, a very big stretch of the soul <laughs> to yeah, to no, navigate I, through that no no i come to realize subsequently you know perhaps she was awkward and didn't know really what to say or perhaps mm -hmm. the dog had finished doing what it needed to do and it was time to I, I really don't know i've never talked to her about what was in her mind right. but that's that's the first thought that came into my mind um and so what that led to it led to me um and there was a number no number of things like that um I was on a short list to be uh, an editor of a major health magazine, and, and I believe they saw this thing online, and then that was the last I heard from them. Um, right. So there was sort of a constant feeling of rejection, um, you know, which is not pleasant, but you have to deal with. Yes. And and what that did was really get me thinking about how do we really think? You know, mm -hmm. how do people make judgments? What that what are their perception based on? And of course, I'd I'd studied this a lot professionally, but now I had time to really get into it and look at how we really think. And there's been a lot of work in what's called cognitive neuroscience, which is the study of basically of how people think, which shows. 
you know, that even though we have the potential to be logical, you know, we're not. Um, we, we, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. As, as I like Do to tell. Say, yeah, as I like to say, you know, hum, human beings are not logical. They're psychological, often with the emphasis on the psycho. <laughs> and, and, and that's what the research shows. There are inherent yes. biases. We are storytellers. We're not truth seekers. We want to create narratives that are comfortable for us, that help us manage our emotions. And that's where we're at. And when you start understanding that that's how people think and that's how you think, that's incredibly powerful. It's a little disconcerting, I have to say, but yes. it's also incredibly powerful. Yes. So can you give an example of what that would look like in real life? Well, there's all sorts of biases. Um, there's something called um, the availability bias, which is if you can think of some examples that, that are relevant, you will make it, you'll overvalue those examples um, even if they have no sense at all, or it's the same example that's repurposed. Um, so, so, in, so it's called the availability, like what's top of the mind, what you can recall. So one example would be, you know, if there's a lot of media coverage of, let's say, a train crash or a plane crash, you know, people say, oh, God, I'm not going to ever travel on a plane or a train again, because that's top of their mind. Well, you know, a couple of weeks later, that slipped out of their mind. That's not their view. Um, so that's one example. There are numerous, numerous biases, a confirmation biases. We look for confirmation of our stories. And, you know, we pick and choose what we want to focus on. And, and you see that politically. You know, you see people using arguments. Uh, and there's a good example right now in the, in the United States. Um, as you know, the Supreme Court Justice uh, Scalia died. And so this whole debate was, should President Obama be allowed to um, nominate someone to the Supreme Court? Well, all the Republicans, of course, said, no, you shouldn't do that, blah, 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 because of this. And all the Democrats said, oh, yeah, you should. But you know that if the reverse were the case, that if it were a Republican president, those positions would be completely reversed, okay? So there's an example of how we go with what we want to say with our narratives and with what we want to believe. And that process seems to be getting worse. In other words, we tend to be getting more and more biased and less and less objective. So if we were going to use that to our advantage, theoretically, I might not put Coke in front of me um, Coca-Cola in front of me. <laughs> Glad you clarified <laughs> Every that. day, every day, exactly. I might want to put like a glass of water with lemon if I was actually going to be using availability bias to my, to my benefit. Is that like the right kind of thinking? Is that what you're... Well, yeah, I mean, the availability bias applies to kind of your mental environment, what's in your head, but it absolutely applies to your physical environment. And obviously, if you wanted to go on a diet, you don't want to have junk food and sugar and, and all of that around because it's just too difficult to, to resist. Um, so, you know, I, I've come up with a sort of uh, phrase for this, and I've got a website in a, an ebook soon coming out called, I think, therefore, I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> it's a great which, title. Which, which shows that actually what goes on in your head, the first perception, the first thought that comes in your head is a function of the binary brain trying to simplify and stereotype the world, which is very complex. And the fact is the first thing that comes in your head you know, may have an, an element of truth in it, but it's certainly not going to be the whole truth. And, you know, people, I think, who are very creative, people who are successful, are able to get beyond that first perception and be honest with themselves about 
you know, what is influencing them? And is this really just their own bias? Um, or is there something more to it? And so that's why it's uh, so important to be introspective then is to, is to be able to kind of um, get over that, um, you call it more primitive kind of thinking and access thinking that's more insightful. Yeah, and, and right? yes, and one of the leaders in this field is a great psychologist whom I respect enormously, a man called Daniel Kahneman, mm. uh, who wrote um, the, the best book that summarizes this research called Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, and, and he divides thinking into two. One, he calls system one thinking, which is sort of fast and frugal, which is, oh, yeah, that's, I think that's right. Um, yeah, I believe that. You know, the first thing where you really don't subject your thought to any sort of logical analysis or very little. And then the second, system two thinking, is really considered logical analysis, which A, is stressful, takes a lot of time and energy, right. and frankly, most of us don't do it. <laughs> and actually, you, yes. you have to be trained to some some extent uh, in it. Uh, in that book, he gives a great example, which I think helps explain this. Um, he gives you a fact. Um, the lowest incidence of cancer, uh, kidney cancer, occurs in small rural communities. The lowest incidence of kidney cancer occurs in small rural communities. Okay, so when you hear that, your mind thinks, well, I wonder why that is. Well, perhaps people in rural communities live healthier, perhaps their environment's less polluted. I, 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 could, I could see that makes sense. Here's the next fact. The highest rate of kidney cancer occurs in small rural communities. Now, your first reaction is, wait a minute, how can that be? That can't possibly be true. Well, it is. It's a sampling statistical issue. If you have a small community, chances are you probably won't have anyone with kidney cancer, in which case the rate is zero, very low. But if you have a couple of cases, the rate's really high because it's a small community. So that data is a function of the small community. It's got nothing really to do with the environment and its relationship to kidney cancer. So that thing is a great example. Now, one of the things that happens, once you've heard that first one and you've got into your head, boy, rural communities have higher incidence of cancer, even though you told the second one, Sometimes it's very difficult to get rid of that first impression, and that's what you go go around with. Right, and so you gave another great example too. We were talking earlier about how advertisers use this. Oh my! <laughs> well, advertisers, <laughs> advertising basically manipulates cognitive bias because advertisers have known for eons how people think and how to manipulate. So it isn't about giving logical facts, um, hardly ever about logical facts. It's about manipulating people. And so the standard advertising tactics, you know, are to create curiosity or to create a fear of loss, you know. Oh, yes. So, <laughs> so, so typically as, you know, this is a time limit off, a call now, um, and to give you lots of incentives. And, and none of that really has anything to do with the value of the product. You know, there are many, for example, health products out there. And they say, this product's been used for centuries in China. Yeah, don't prove that it works, okay? Uh, we had to go deep in the Amazon to get this product. Yeah, that doesn't prove <laughs> that it works either. It costs millions of dollars to get that. That doesn't that doesn't anything. Joe Celebrity uses it and swears by it. No, no, that's got nothing to do with its value, okay? But you can see how advertisers use, understandably, um, you know, what they know people work on, which is, is bias and their narratives, and it's really not about logic. 
Right. And so in your, in your new book, the I Think Therefore I Am Wrong, is part of the um, um, understanding of that book is also teaching people tools and skills to think differently. Yeah, I think, it's, I, I think it's, it does a number of things. First of all, it makes you aware of the, the fact that the, the brain is a storytelling machine, not a truth-seeking one. The fact that we seek narratives that are emotionally comfortable for us rather than you know, necessarily stand logical scrutiny. Um, that we can be aware of these, the biases that are inherent in our thinking. Um, and particularly the binary brain, which divides things into very false dichotomies, very simplistic things, and there's a real danger of using those, which we all do, um, to become very biased and stereotyped. Right. Um, so are some of so, those things like the all-or-nothing thinking um, and or either yeah. or? That's right. It's it's you know it's not either or a lot of the time. It's and or, um, and just to understand that that process to be mindful. You know what? There's there's a lot more to this that I'm not getting. You know, right? Um, yeah. So Kahneman says the brain really wasn't geared up to know how little it knows, um, and <laughs> you know I think that's true. In as amazing as the brain is, and we, we're going to be talking about that over the next few weeks, it's still limited. Right, um, it's it's still limited, and a lot of times we don't understand that. We think that it's because we got this great brain and we run the, you know, we dominate the earth and we know everything. Well, uh, no, we don't, and we know very little of what there is to know. Right. So the consoling part of that, I think, for uh, myself and listeners also, is that we all are in the same boat. <laughs> Yes, exactly. No, that's exactly. I mean, that's exactly right. So, you know, the first thing to address when you propose this theory is, well, if 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 your thinking's wrong, that means your thinking is wrong too. And I'll certainly uh, own up to that. My thinking is not perfect. Um, there's a great line by a British statistician called George Box who said, you know, all all models, and he really meant theories, not runway superstars. All mo- all models all models are wrong but some are useful. And I think that's a really a good way of thinking of all perceptions are in some ways wrong, some are useful. All thoughts in some ways are wrong, but some are useful. Right. Yes. And so a useful thought for right this moment is we hope that you come back to join us for the last segment of Master Your Life, um, where we'll be talking more about Howard's uh, journey and how he has transitioned Uh, his learning into um, evolving spiritually and evolving as a father and evolving as a human being. Uh, Look forward to uh, the return of you, Howard, in just a few minutes. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Are you in your own driver's seat? Tune in to a program that will get you there based on what others have managed to do through challenges in their lives and how they persevered. Tune in to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. On our show, we use real issues and experts to help you reclaim your life. Danielle and her guests are here to steer you in the right direction. Make sure that you are here every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's time to harness your power. It's time to do all of those things that you always said you'd do in your life. What's stopping you? Is it other people, your environment, fear? What could give you a push? 
Tune in to Raising the Bar with Amy Bredo. Our show is all about taking risks and turning them into positives and personal gain. We'll help your inner voice speak up and get you out of that comfort zone. Raising the Bar can be heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Master Your Life. To reach Leah Mattinson or her guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to Leah. That's L-E-A-H-A at changeyourlife.expert. Now, back to Master Your Life. Well, thank you for uh, coming back and joining us today with my guest and co-host, uh, Dr. Howard Rankin. Uh, we were just picking up on Howard's journey of uh, spirituality and um, things that have changed in his life as a result of having stumbled. So, Howard, without further ado, maybe you'd just like to kind of share your, your journey. Yeah, so one of the things that happened to me, I've always considered myself to be somewhat spiritual. I was raised in London in a Jewish family and because proud of my, my heritage and the, the moral aspects of the religion, but it never moved me terribly spiritually. I could never connect, and I think part of the reason was that it was taught a lot in Hebrew and that just didn't resonate. Um, right. When I married uh, my current wife uh, 26 years ago, um, she's Catholic and that was important to her and I said, well, if it's important to you, it's certainly important to me and I will come to church with you and we will raise our children. We have a son raised in in that tradition. Uh, I said, I don't know that I'm going to convert, but you know, uh, I'll definitely participate and I have participated a lot in the church. But when this incident happened, with this public exposure and this shame, humiliation, and disgrace, one of the things that I did was look at myself and say, you know what, if you're going to have a relationship with God, you need to have it on his terms, not yours. And so I decided there and then that I was going to convert to Catholicism, and um, I'm really glad that I've done that. That's been very meaningful to me. Um, and interestingly enough, um, this this sort of horrible, nasty piece came out in the newspaper on a Friday, and probably the most nervous I felt was driving to church that Sunday. Uh, <laughs> yeah. As you might imagine, you know, oh, you're a, yes. a pariah walking through the church steps. Well, you know, several people came up, put their arm around me, um, literally and metaphorically. Um, and again, that, that just meant everything to me. Yes, so there was this... Um, real redemptive moment or real redemptive time in your life. Yeah. And one of the things about being cast in this um, mold of, you know, a pariah or someone who's done something wrong or what have you is it allows you to see other people's reactions. And um, as as you know, Leah, from my first marriage, I do have an autistic son. Right. And watching people react to him was very interesting. Some people would be really compassionate, and some people would make fun of him. And um, I started a book some years ago called God's Mystery Shoppers, mm. which is how marginalized and, and disabled people really are a mirror to us. How you treat them 
says a lot about you, not that. That's so true. That is so and, true. Yeah. And so now being in this position, I felt, well, you know, heck, I'm, I'm now one of God's mystery shoppers. How are people <laughs> treating me? Are they, are they jumping to conclusions? Are they talking to me? Are they compassionate? Uh, what, what are they? And, that's, and it's really interesting. So that is another book that I have kind of on the back burner. Um, but it, again, opened my eyes to that about how we need to be much more understanding and compassionate to people. We live in a society in a time with social media where it's very, very easy to be anti-stuff rather than pro-stuff. Um, you know, it's very easy to be a hater. Um, and honestly, you know, that's not where we want to be. Right. It's very and, easy to hide behind a... Um, instant message system or and send messages anonymously um, back and forth through media. And it's very different to see people in person and then yep. to understand, like, we really all are one. We're, we're all the same. And so when we disconnect um, from each other by being hostile or um, uh, just like lo- loathing, yes, unkind and, uh, that we really haven't accessed those deeper parts of ourself and, in understanding that we have all done things along right. the journey of our life that have not been so hot. <laughs> so, no, that, you know, that's right. And if, if somebody comes up to me and says, Howard, that was a stupid thing to do, I'd agree. You, I'd be the first person to say that. Or, you know, aren't you ashamed? Yeah, of course. No one's more ashamed than I am. But if people come on with, you know, a lot of hate, then honestly that says a whole lot more about them than it does me. And, yes. you know, that's where that concept of God's mystery shopper comes in. I love it. I love it. You have always got some many interesting projects on the go, many <laughs> things to write about. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm also writing uh, the, the book on um, the art and science of redemption, having been through it and, and going through it and understanding it. What You know, because... Look, who hasn't got a secret of something that they're ashamed of or guilty about? Right. You know, who hasn't got that? I, I don't know anyone. Uh, as I like to say, nobody's perfect, but some of us are in the newspapers. Um, it's, you know, we've all got that. And so right. learning how to deal with that and not allowing it to define who you are, I think, is very, very important. Right. And maybe for our listeners, you could just define the difference between guilt and shame because they're different things. Well, well, guilt is you violated some sort of moral value or code that you have. Shame is, is, is much more to do with social connection and, and how you view yourself in relation to other people. You know, and um, and that's important. Uh, Mark Twain said, uh, "Man is the only animal that blushes or needs to." Um, <laughs> you know, the fact is, we are very aware of our social <clears throat> social place. You know, and so um, that's where the shame comes in. How do people see? And of course, shame is very much tied to suicidal thoughts and, and suicide. Not so much depression that um, has people being suicidal. It's that sense of shame that really is related to it. So it's a very important topic. Yes, a very important topic. And so so for, again, the listeners, like what would be um, immediate things that they could understand the difference between if they're feeling ashamed of something or if they're feeling guilty about something? Well, of course, those th- two things do typically go together, so they're probably feeling both. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, part of it is is dealing with it. Is And, of course, you know as I implied from the 
the, the stuff about how we think, you know, we want to avoid uncomfortable emotions. We don't right. want to deal with them. So, you know, we use all sorts of defense mechanisms and what have you, most of which are inappropriate. Things like denying that there's a problem or blaming other people as everyone else's fault or stuff like that, you know? Yes. Well, and other um, low-quality behaviors, too. I think when you go underground and you can't, um, that you can't confess either to yourself or, or make amends to other people, uh, that I certainly see a lot of people who struggle with moving towards bad behavior, so addictive problems are going, you know, to um, outside sources to relieve the pain that's happening internally for them. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's the biggest driver for us is we want to relieve the emotional pain. We've got to learn how to deal with it. And, and, and it's the reason why when people hit rock bottom, you know, they're forced to deal with that in perhaps a way they haven't wanted to before. And, you know, that's a magical moment. Um, um, putting on my, I saw a nice quote the other day, putting on my sp- spiritual hat. Um, um, God lets you hit rock bottom to remind you that he is the rock at the bottom. Oh, I love that. I love yeah, that. I, yeah, I'll find out who, uh, I, uh, that is not my quote. It, it's somebody, it's a great line, isn't it? It is um, a wonderful line, yes. Yeah, and and it's, it's when we finally have to face up and deal with the emotion that, you know, the journey begins. Right. And so there's this real reclaiming of virtue going through that process. And then also I think it's just like we're called to kind of de- keep refining our character and developing our moral intelligence, which is different than emotional intelligence, which I think is spoken of a lot in society today. Um, what are your thoughts on that, the difference between emotional intelligence and moral yeah. intelligence? Yeah, I think emotional intelligence, you know, is, is the understanding of other people's and your own emotions. Uh, moral intelligence is the ability not to just take that understanding, but to act on it and to be more discerning about your thought and your behavior, you know, um, and to really try to be, you know, the right, the right person, to be who you want to be in a good way, not... Um, you know, in a narcissistic way. And so that moral intelligence is, to me, is very, very important. Um, Very important indeed. Right, and it keeps circling back, I think, to the original question that we posed at the beginning of the show, which is really that, like, who do I want to be? Who do I want to be in this world? And how would my character affect not only myself and my trajectory in my life, but the people who um, I... Uh, love in my family or who I work with every day and, and the community at large and then and the world. So when we disconnect from um, the idea that we don't have a responsibility to develop moral intelligence, uh, I think that affects more than just ourselves and our, and our own little low-quality behaviors, um, but it affects um, more people uh, than we can ever possibly imagine because of this ripple-out effect of, of how our state and how we operate in the world affects everybody that's involved in us. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if we are we are social animals. Um, we do need connection. And again, the binary brain is is very quick to give us the differences between people rather than the similarities between people. You know, and so we divide ourselves on what are somewhat arbitrary um, differences when we neglect the amazing similarities that we have, you know? Yes. And, and, you know, um, doesn't matter what race you are, you know, you can pick any 
race you want, two or three of them, 99.9% the same. But of course, the brain's going to pick out the one or two things that are different because it works on contrast. Um, and so we end up, you know, being divided by the differences rather than united by the similarities. Right. And I think media also, um, or the way that we interact with one another today affects that also, because we're not meeting each other face to face. We're meeting each other through all the, the media. So it's different than when you meet somebody in your community and, and they may be a different race or religion or whatever they are and you meet them and you, you can find connection really quickly um, because there's nothing divisive between you. Uh, where on media, sometimes you get all the divisive stuff first and then you're struggling to um, Correct. Yeah, find something in common. Right, exactly. And because the media and the entertainment industry is really geared to create controversy and, and plays to the binary brain. It's either this or that, you're for this or you're against that. And again, that's just too simplistic. It is very simplistic. <laughs> so we're going to make things complicated for people <laughs> and, get them, yep. and get them to be thinking about what we'd like is for people to be thinking about or our audience to join us in thinking about how to think differently, how to, how to become right. more connected every week, how to become more uh, introspective and have insight and intelligence that's going to help them to uh, master the things in their life that are challenging. So they can be things that are really public or they can be things that are, are private internal sort of struggles and battles that, that um, they're going through. And, yeah. uh, you know, those things are brought to, I think, us at every age and stage of life. Right. No, I think that's true. And in fact, um, we have uh, an idea for somebody, for our listeners this week, right? Absolutely. So I think every week we've uh, talked about actually giving our listeners a four-minute miracle toolkit. Uh, so just something that they can do uh, in just four minutes a day or four minutes every day of the week, totally up to them. Um, maybe, Howard, you could explain what this week's tool is. Well, given what we've been talking about, we'd like people to be more mindful of their own thinking now because you're not going to be doing that 24-7. But if you just spend a few minutes, just four minutes a day, thinking about that, and of course, one way of doing that, great way of doing that is journaling, just writing down a thought, writing down, who do I want to be? Write it down and ponder that question just for a few minutes a day. It's important to write it out. Journaling is important. I, I told you that story, Leah. I was doing a uh, talk um, one time for a group that I was working with and I, I mentioned journaling and I came back the, the next year and this woman said to me, you know, I tried to do that and the first three months all I wrote was, Dr. Rankin told me to do this. <laughs> and then I started doing it and oh my gosh, it was incredibly helpful. So I do think journaling and putting and thinking about these things, just make, taking a little time to think about the question of who do I want to be and being a little more mindful of how simplistic thinking is, and that's just the way we're made, um, everyone else's and yours and mine, and being aware of that, at least that level of awareness can take you on to, to being more open to some of the things that we're going to be discussing in future sessions. And, Absolutely. And, and, and so I just want to give some instructions to our listeners about right. how to um, go about doing this, because it's really important um, you can listen about things, you can think about things, but if you don't actually take action and write them down or take action and do something physically with them, it's very difficult to make any sort of change in your life. So what we're hoping is that you'll participate and it'll be fun for you at some level. So you need to go buy a journal or grab some loose leaf paper or whatever it is and 
really sit down and think about what's my dedication to myself in this journey? Why do I want to master these parts of my life? What part of me do I want to see develop and become better and better and better? Um, So it is the task for this week to go buy a journal or just a cheap scribbler. You don't need to spend a ton of money doing these things. And uh, to sit down and and write, uh, ask yourself, who do I want to be? Great. And that leads us very nicely into your story, Leah. And next week, um, we'll be talking about your incredible story um, and also your book, Silver Linings, which reflects your amazing amazing story. It's inspirational, it's insightful, and it's intelligent. Um, And I'm not going to give too much of it away, but I will say this. If there are any of you out there who know or have uh, are suffering from a potentially fatal illness, you need to listen to the show. Oh, thank you, Howard. Um, and and so <laughs> I look forward to uh, everyone coming back next week to join us for more of the three eyes: inspiration, insight, and intelligence on Master Your Life. Thank you for being a part of our show today. Master Your Life with Leah Mattinson can be heard every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now, go enjoy your successful life. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.